electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, New York Times foreign affairs columnist Tom Friedman on leadership in the time of coronavirus. Leaders who trust their people with the truth are trusted more. States are setting their plans to reopen businesses. New Jersey's governor explains pandemic preparedness plainly. Everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face. We've been punched in the face. And a warning about the possible cardiac risks in the heavily touted drug hydroxychloroquine. If we're going to use these medicines in the sick patient, we really need to be on our A game because we're starting to put together the perfect storm. It's Monday, April 27th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. We do have a big lineup of- First up on this Monday podcast, a conversation about reopening America amid the coronavirus pandemic. Global cases of COVID-19 now stand at 2.9 million, and cases in the U.S., 965,000. New York State has the most cases in the country, and runner-up for that grim title is New Jersey, with well over 100,000 cases. Over the weekend, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo outlined the state's plan to reopen its economy in three phases. The pause is statewide until May 15th, right? Then you have the CDC guidance that says hospital, total hospitalization is declining for 14 days, okay? So we get to May 15th. What regions have seen a decline for 14 days? That's where you will start the conversation to get to phase one in that region. But elsewhere in the U.S., several states have already begun to reopen salons, retailers, and other businesses. Among them, Georgia, Tennessee, Texas, South Carolina, and Alaska. Colorado, Mississippi, Minnesota, and Montana are all set to follow suit, easing stay-at-home orders later this week. Here's Becky Quick starting things off with New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy about his plans for the Garden State as it battles COVID-19. Governor, thank you for being with us right now. We really appreciate your time today. Honored to be with you, Becky. Governor, can you just give us an update on where things stand uh, on the ground right now, how things are going? We're still in the thick of the fight, without question. Uh, We've lost just almost 6,000 of our blessed residents. We have 109,000 folks who have tested positive. But some of the trend lines are beginning to look encouraging. Hospitalizations have started to come down, which is very encouraging. Still not as low as we'd like. Uh, Intensive care units have stabilized down slightly in ventilator use, etc., We're in that paradoxical period that Dr. Fauci warned us of where some of the data looks good. Positive test curve is flattening without question, yet we're still losing folks, uh, you know, in some cases several hundred a day. Uh, But we are beginning to sort of fight our way through this. We're not anywhere near out of the woods yet, uh, but there's no, no question at the same time that we're making progress. The fact that folks have stayed at home, stayed away from each other, has been a huge success so far in New Jersey. 
How much more improvement would you need to see before you feel like you can start to open the state, at least relax some of, of the restrictions that have been put on? We're going to go through actually later today sort of the principles that will guide us. But we're going to have to see meaningful reductions in things like uh, positive test results and more importantly, hospitalizations. The positive test results piece is a little bit squishy because we're testing. I think we're the fourth highest tested state in America. We've come from nothing to there, but the, we still don't have uh, the, the answer to the question of what's the denominator. We do know on hospitalizations, you know for sure if somebody's in the hospital, why they're there. So we need to see meaningful reduction uh, of, those, of those curves. Uh, and God willing, they'll come in the next several weeks, uh, but we're not there yet. I believe what I was reading over the weekend suggested that in New Jersey, at least, I think something like 43 percent of the tests that are given come back positive. And that number, I think, has to come down to closer to 10 percent before we can feel like we're actually doing adequate testing. Is that correct? Well, it, it, like everything else with COVID, it depends on who you ask. But the, the key thing for the 43 percent is that we have tested overwhelmingly because we had limited supplies from the federal government. We've tested overwhelmingly symptomatic folks. So that number is, is disproportionately higher than any estimate of what the, the general population would look like. And that's an important footnote on that number. So if you were testing asymptomatic and symptomatic, and we hope to be able to do that sooner than later, we're going to need to at least double our testing capacity uh, until we feel comfortable that we've got the system in place to re start to reopen. Uh, and you include asymptomatic folks, that percentage positive is going to go down dramatically. Governor, you've canceled school through May 15th here in this state. Traditionally, our schools go till the 20-something of June. Do you think reasonably that there is a chance schools will be back in session this year? And by this year, I mean there this year. There is a chance. Year. Yeah, yeah, there is a chance. Uh, we've not made that decision. Uh, we have tried to take this in bites. We wanted to have as much information at our disposal as possible. Uh, and so as you're right, absolutely right. We've, we've canceled in-person in schooling until at least... May 15, uh, and we'll give guidance before May 15 as to where we see the rest of the school year. But if, if, is there a chance we could get back in some new reality? This is all going to be uh, a, a new norm, including what school looks like, uh, distancing, uh, how, wh whether or not you have general assemblies. My guess is you don't. Do we wear Do we encourage face coverings, etc.? Those questions are to be determined. Uh, but yes, there is a chance that we could we could get back in school. I've also heard that we have about four to six weeks of, of revenue still on hand before the state starts to run out of cash. I know you've had some disagreements with the federal government on the money that has been allocated and what it can be spent on. What, what are your biggest complaints about the restrictions around what this money could be spent on and what you think it should be spent on? Yeah, so we've, we're, we're probably not unlike a lot of American states. I, I might add both red and blue. Uh, but we're running short. Uh, we're at the front line. Our costs are going up serving folks who have who have lost their jobs, small businesses that have been crushed, uh, folks who are in the health care system, etc. Our revenues have fallen off a table. So a couple of things. The CARES Act, we're still trying to find good common ground as to how we could spend that money. Uh, I had a good conversation at the end of the week with Secretary Mnuchin. His team and my team have been at it over the weekend. We're still not there yet. Uh, but but the, how that money is interpreted, uh, you know, for instance, your entire education system has been transformed because of COVID-19. Your entire public safety reality has been transformed. 
uh, we believe those are eligible uh, costs that need to be addressed. So there's one piece of this is how do we interpret the CARES Act. The far bigger piece is going to be that we need a lot more federal assistance. Uh, Senator Menendez in our state and Senator Cassidy in Louisiana have co-sponsored a, a bill that would bring $500 billion in direct cash assistance to states. That's exactly what the doctor ordered. Um, with all due respect to Senator McConnell, uh, whose comments about bankruptcy of states I found irresponsible and wrong. The alternative is not bankruptcy. The alternative is we will gut the living daylights out of the very services that our, that our folks now are desperately relying upon in what is the biggest health care crisis in the history of our country. So we need federal help, not only interpretation of the CARES Act money, but we need a lot more money, direct cash assistance coming from Congress and the president. Meaning what? In four to six weeks, when we run out of money here in the state, you won't be able to pay teachers, you won't be able to pay firemen, you won't be able to pay policemen. What are you, what are you talking about? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Now, God willing, we'll be able to both interpret uh, properly the CARES Act uh, uh, disbursements and we'll get another big slug out of the feds. But that's the sort of Armageddon that we're looking at. And I don't say that with any amount of joy. That's exactly the wrong thing we should be doing. But we'll have no choice. Hey, Governor, there, I, I completely understand what you're talking about with these payments that need to go out and, and those people on the front lines and those who are taking care of our kids in particular to make sure that they're still learning. But there have been some piggish examples from other states. Illinois, the Senate president there, sent in a note requesting a huge amount of money, including $10 billion, to bail out their underfunded pension plan. And that seems a little ridiculous when you start hearing about issues like that. We have our own underfunded pension plan, plan here in New Jersey. Is that something that you would ask money for? What do you think about Illinois' move to do just that? Now, listen, I got elected to fix the economy, both to make it grow again and make it fair again. And we had spent over two years stabilizing just the sorts of things you're asking about. Uh, we've made historically high pension payments. We had historic high surpluses and rainy day funds. We had things going in the right direction. And uh, to quote the immortal Mike Tyson, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face. We've been punched in the face. Uh, I'm not looking for help for stuff that we were already working on, that we had inherited uh, the, the, the structural deficits that had been building up in New Jersey for decades, in particular in the last administration. That's not the that that's not what we're looking at. I'm I'm looking at revenues that have fallen off a table off the table. I'm looking at expenses to to deal with the unemployed, the folks in the healthcare system, the small businesses that have skyrocketed. Uh, that's ex explicitly what we need help with. You are also working with other governors in this region. I think six or seven states have kind of banded together, uh, including New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Maryland, to try and figure out what's going to come next. Pennsylvania. What, what are you hearing from those governors, and are there parts of that alliance that would like to open sooner than others? Yeah, it's a very good group. It's from Massachusetts down to Delaware, um, and, the, and the relationships that are the dearest to us are the ones clearly who are our neighbors, none more so important than New York and Governor Cuomo. We had coordinated as an informal matter <clears throat> in closing our economies. It occurred to us, hey, why not put a little bit more formality around a regional council as we, as we look to take the steps to reopen. <clears throat> in fact, there's a meeting going on of the council right now. I don't think you'll see us taking, in each case, identical steps, but I think you'll see our steps harmonized. 
uh, and, and our, our enormous uh, overlaps are going to be in the metro New York reality from New York City into the northern and northeast counties in New Jersey that have been hit the hardest, have been crushed, uh, as I said, with almost 6,000 deaths. Every county in our state has fatalities, but the bulk of, bulk of them are up there. So you're going to see a deep amount of coordination. Again, not necessarily exact lockstep actions, but coordination on schools and norms as it relates to testing, as it relates to what a restaurant or a bar should look like, uh, etc. So far, it's been very productive. Uh, and these states have been very good to work with. We're the densest state in America and the densest region in America. So this stuff is important. Uh, and, I, and I'm happy we're a part of it. Governor, could you see separating uh, the population, if you will, in New Jersey that commutes into New York City and uses public transport from everybody else who effectively is, is driving to work and, and, and driving their kids to school? Because clearly, from a risk perspective, it's, it's the public transport. It's getting into a, a, a city where there's obviously more surfaces more, more ability for, for the virus to spread, and how do you sort of break that dynamic? Because even if you have a parent who's going into the city, taking a bus into the city, taking the train into the city, then, then, then going back and forth and then coming back out to New Jersey, that's where the risk gets presented in a way where, where of course, New York City makes all of this that much more complicated. Yeah. I mean, all, th- all considerations are on the table, without question. Um, and how we go about that. We not only have a regional council that I mentioned a minute ago, but we're, we're going to announce a council that, that is advising us explicitly for New Jersey matters within the next day or so. Uh, and those are the sorts of issues and questions we're talking about. <clears throat> we're, we're not necessarily unique in any respect here, but the three communities, and, and, and by the way, there's a lot of overlap in these communities that have been crushed in terms of sickness and fatality our older folks in our state, folks with uh, coexisting health care challenges or comorbidities, and folks in long-term care facilities, without question. And again, in many cases, that's, that's an overlapping of the same individuals. Uh, but trying to find a way to protect them uh, is going to be paramount. And, and there is an element there, without question. We are part of the Metro New York saga here, uh, and that includes the six counties in our Northeast that are that that contribute the most amount of commuting in in and out of New York and how we handle that will be a big piece of this without question. What the answer is, I'm not sure yet at this point, uh, but without question, that's that's one of the challenges we've got. Uh, Governor, I I realize you have to go. A a very quick last question for you. We spoke with the CEO of LabCorp last week, who is talking about these new in-home tests that they can now do for coronavirus. It's not legal here in the state of New Jersey. Is that something you're considering looking into and changing, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, we're looking at, on testing, we're looking at everything. LabCorp has been great. It's one of, one of the pr- processing firms that we've leaned on most heavily. We need to at least double our testing capacity. Uh, Rutgers has got a very promising s- saliva test, which we believe and they believe can be scaled. Uh, again, LabCorp, BioReference, Quest, other players in here. We're talking to everybody, including the White House. Uh, we, we have some amount of optimism <clears throat> that we'll be able to see a big uptick in our testing capabilities literally in the next, within the next month. Governor Murphy, thank you for your time today. We, we truly appreciate it, and good luck in the rest of your battles with this. Coming up, Tom Friedman, New York Times foreign affairs columnist, says the requirements for leadership 
during the coronavirus pandemic are growing exponentially. Trust is the only legal performance-enhancing drug. And when there's trust in the room between you and a leader, more good things happen than bad things happen. Squawk Pod will be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist Tom Friedman's newest piece in the New York Times over the weekend argued, we need herd immunity from Trump and the coronavirus. Friedman warns it will take more care than President Trump is currently demonstrating to loosen restrictions and still protect the vulnerable. This follows another recent column where Friedman says leadership is not more important than ever, but exponentially more important. Here's New York Times foreign affairs columnist Tom Friedman on Squawk Box today. A crisis like this, Becky, uh, I, I was interviewing one of the people I really think uh, understands leadership best, my friend Dove Seidman, the founder of LRN. And the point Dove was making is that in a crisis like this, um, people naturally look to those in authority uh, to lead them. You're, you're uncertain, you're frightened. And um, what were the attributes they were looking for is what we were exploring. And and one thing they certainly look for is leaders who trust them with, who trust their people with the truth, because uh, that's really important. When I put all my hope and and uh, into you, I want to know that you are telling me the truth back. And um, leaders who trust their people with the truth are trusted more. They also look for leaders, um, uh, I think, who are humble, who are ready to say, I don't know. Um, you know, Doug made the point that when you listen to Dr. Fauci and he says something uh, and you're asking something, he says, I don't know. Well, you listen to him more afterwards, you know, um, and that the issue of trust is so important. Uh, you know, Doug was saying that trust is the only legal performance enhancing drug. And when there's trust in the room between you and a leader, between each other, more good things happen than bad things happen. Hey, Tom, let's talk about how business leaders have been playing a role in this and, and, and how things have kind of been rolling out from that perspective. A lot of the moves that corporate leaders have made. And it has been a highlight to see some of these leaders really stepping up and changing production, trying to make sure they're addressing this however they can, uh, trying to take care of their people in downtimes. How, how do you think corporate America is responding to this and how do you expect that to play out? You know, I, I think they've responded generally well. I think we, we have a lot uh, to be proud of. I think the thing you have to keep in mind, though, Becky, is that um, fighting, you know, we've described this as a war. President Trump has said, I'm a wartime president. And um but this actually, when you're when you're up in a war against nature, that's a different thing. So when we were fighting the Germans and the Japanese, we could outmobilize them. When we were fighting the Soviet Union, we could outinnovate and outspend them. Um, but when you're up against Mother Nature, um, it, it's a very different fight. Yep, because she's just chemistry, biology, and physics. So first of all, you have to be really humble about her because um, if you disrespect her, she will kill you or someone you love, okay, number one. Number two, you have to be incredibly coordinated when you're dealing with her. And thirdly, you have to be rigorously science-based because if she's just chemistry, biology, and physics, you better be as well. And I think the best companies um, and, and the administration, when it's been at its best, have really adopted that approach. 
Dr. Scott Gottlieb has an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal today saying that America needs to really focus on producing a vaccine and producing it here in this country. There are a lot of manufacturers in other countries. His point is wherever that vaccine, that first vaccine is produced or the ones immediately after that, what's probably going to happen is the local authorities will want to make sure they take care of their population first. Um, it, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. It does make you start thinking back to nationalism and kind of taking care of your own. We've already seen that play out in the United States uh, to some extent when you had governors that were either fighting for PPE for their hospitals or fighting to make sure that they had ventilators on this. Do you think that he's right to have concerns about that? Yeah, you know, Becky, really, it's all a race um, for herd immunity. Um, how do we get uh, all our people immune? Uh, all right. And so there's there's two ways you get the, the herd immune. One is through a vaccine uh, and the other is through a process of exposure where people develop the, the natural immunity. And um, uh, so in the vaccine race, I, I see that as a race between Moore's law and COVID's law. You know, COVID's law is about um, the, uh, the the speed at which this uh, the exponential rate at which this virus spreads. And of course, Moore's law is about the speed and power of microchips and its exponential growth. And it's really a proxy for innovation. And um, uh, we've always done well with Moore's law, you know. Um, yeah, but I can tell you, you know, the way I start my day now every morning, I'm not a scientist, I'm not I'm not a doctor, so I'm just a reporter. So I do reporting on what I, I see out there as the three big tests going on. You know, one is the Swedish test. And and the Swedes basically um, have said, we're going to go for natural herd immunity. Um, and uh, and it's uh, the, the book is still out. It's quite interesting, you know, what's going on there. They've had more deaths. Uh, but they think about 25 to 30 percent of Stockholm now has herd immunity. And again, this is assuming that immunity works here, that you cannot you know, reacquire this infection afterwards. And we still don't know that. Second test is really Singapore, China, um, uh, New York City, you know, suppress it. Um, try to break the chains of transmission, um, get it under control and buy time for a vaccine or therapies. And the third approach, I would say, is Georgia, where people just say, I cannot stay home anymore. Um, I have to work. I'm going to go out and take my chances. It's a, it's, it's a less control process. So as a reporter, I'm watching all three of those um, while I listen to your show and see who's who's doing well on therapies and vaccines. I mean, if you're at home waiting, and I guess that, that gets us to the point where we are in the New York City area, you're at home waiting for a cure or a vaccine, vaccine's going to take a while. And, and, and it, it does beg the question of how long you can actually keep people locked up at home. And what happens in a place like New York City if you do open up again, particularly with the subways and with people really crowded on top of each other? It's different than being in rural Georgia. Yeah, it, you know, there, there's no question about it. I mean, the... Um, I, I, as you know, we did it on this show, uh, and, and, and Dr. David Katz helped trigger this debate five, six weeks ago now. I, I really believe we have to find a way to harmonize um, our desire to save lives and livelihoods, uh, because deaths of despair by crushing the economy uh, will, in the end, kill so many more people than the virus itself. Um, so I think we have to take very seriously how to harmonize those. But I, I do believe you have to do it in a in a very strategic and coordinated way, if, if you're going to uh, start to, to, to lift these uh, uh, closures. And so, you know, I, I followed the work a lot of Amnon Shashua, he's an Israeli computer scientist who founded Mobileye. You probably had him on the phone to talk about mm -hmm. that, the autonomous driving company that was bought by Intel. And what, what Amnon um, uh, and his colleagues have been writing in Israel is that we need to um, take an inventory of the total number of 
beds, ICU units in the country. Um, we need to strictly quarantine and sequester those most vulnerable to being killed by this disease, the elderly and those with immune complications. Um, and then you phase in slowly um, that part of the population who has either already become immune, assuming the immunity still works, and who are, if they get the disease, are least likely to be um, uh, killed by it um, and would experience it in mild or even asymptomatic ways, which, which it, by all the data so far, seems to be at least 75% of the population. And you slowly feed them in and try to acquire herd immunity that way. It's a very, but you gotta be very strategic about both ends of that. Who um, is most likely not to be felled by this disease? Who is the most vulnerable? Put all your resources in protecting the most vulnerable and then basically try to develop a kind of herd immunity that way. So that's that's the approach that they're debating there. It's kind of the Swedish right. approach. Um, we'll just have to see where, which one wins in the in in the and, in the field. And Tom, Tom, and this goes to the issue though of leadership that you were talking about earlier. Is there any state or or municipality in the country that you think is a, is approaching it in this strategic way? Uh, you know, if you just try to separate those who are over sixty five years old or those who are um, uh, potentially more vulnerable. Uh, you have to put in place measures to get them food, uh, to get them essentials and supplies, to have a network and system that can do that for them. I'm dealing with my, my own parents right now, and uh, we can't even, you know, uh, with all of the thing, resources that I think I have, I can't get that all organized. So um, it's, it, it, takes, it takes leadership and takes a lot of work. Is there, is there a model out there in the U.S. that's interesting to you? Um, I don't see it yet, um, Andrew. I don't see something as, as strategic as uh, the one Shashua was talking about in Israel, um, uh, or, or even the, the, the middle model, the, the Singapore one. And, and um, you know, the thing about people just don't understand that, because um, we've never experienced this, uh, uh, this kind of thing before. Um, Mother Nature is just chemistry, biology, and physics. And um, you can't talk her up, you can't talk her down. You can't say, Mother Nature, I'm tired, I've been closed up for a month, or even that I've lost my job. She will do whatever chemistry, biology, and physics dictate. And if you disrespect her, she will kill someone you love or you. And so you you, you just got to be serious about that. And, and I think we have not shown that kind of seriousness. Hey, Tom, thanks for your time this morning. It's good to see you. Always back. Thanks so much for having me. Next on Squawk Pod, a warning about the safety of using hydroxychloroquine in treating coronavirus patients that gets right to the heart of things. A Mayo Clinic cardiologist joins us. The benefit has not been proven for the sick COVID-19 patient, but unfortunately, the tragedy of treatment-induced sudden death is being seen already. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. 
That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. The FDA is warning against the use of hydroxychloroquine for treating COVID-19 patients. This follows the release of an editorial late last week from the Journal of the American Medical Association that lays out concerns about off-label use of the traditionally anti-malaria drug in treating seriously ill coronavirus patients. It argues that much of the efficacy is anecdotal or in studies too small to meet medical community standards. Another concern about the drug laid out by this editorial is the potential that, in some patients, it can impact the heart's electrical ability. It's self-charging, if you will. In late March, the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota released guidance about this very risk, that hydroxychloroquine and variations of the drug can increase what's called the QT interval on your electrocardiogram. It's a way of defining the in-betweens of the heart's beat. Patients with a prolonged QT can be at risk for an irregular heartbeat or even a cardiac arrest. On March 26th, Mayo cardiologist Dr. Michael Ackerman joined Squawk Box. Virtually all of these drugs that are being considered and being used have the potential to prolong the heart's QT interval and in doing so increases the patient's chance for the heart to spin electrically out of control into a potentially dangerous heart rhythm. And if that doesn't revert back to normal, then that patient will go on to experience drug-induced sudden cardiac arrest and worst, drug-induced sudden cardiac death. So we asked him back when we heard this news about the FDA's warning against hydroxychloroquine. Here's Becky Quick with Dr. Ackerman this morning. What was your reaction uh, to the news in the journal from American Medical Association? Obviously, this is something you'd been on the lookout for. Unfortunately, we're not surprised. As you know, we were with you, Becky, and we put out this warning from Mayo Clinic and the Mayo Clinic proceedings on March 25th. Hard to believe it's been over a month ago. And, and in the Brazilian study that's in the paper that you talked about, at least with the Brazilian cor- Corona cocktail, which was really a high dose of chloroquine, 600 milligrams twice a day, plus azithromycin or the z that combination, the Brazilian Corona cocktail, is absolutely deadly. There was over two times the mortality rate in those patients randomized to receive the high-dose cocktail rather than the standard or the lower dose. What, what does that tell us about the, the cases here in the United States? There are some tests that are being run right now where patients who are in the hospital are being, being given um, a different cocktail, but similar enough, one that's hydrochloroquine with the z And I, I didn't realize the z can also uh, create bigger problems with the heart irregularity. Yeah, both of those medications. So in America, we mostly use hydroxychloroquine along with azithromycin or the ZPAC. And both of those medications by themselves can annoy the heart's electrical system, can prolong the QT interval, and set up the perfect storm for the treatment itself to cause sudden cardiac death. And last Friday, at the same time, uh, Lior Jankelson and our colleagues at New York University showed the similar thing that 11% of the patients treated with the American version of the Corona cocktail, 11% prolonged their QTC into the red light territory that we warned about with their QTC going over 500 milliseconds. And then subsequently, the FDA, through its adverse event reporting system, started to accumulate not only cases of QT prolongation, 
but the tragedies where the treatment themselves was causing the sudden deaths of the patient. And that prompted the FDA on Friday to put out a warning, a, a, med, a safety med watch alert saying, please do not use hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine in the outpatient setting. Do not only use these medications under a clinical trial or in the hospitalized setting because the benefit has not been proven for the sick COVID-19 patient, but unfortunately, the tragedy of treatment-induced sudden death is being seen already. You had warned us at the time that, uh, look, you're not an epidemiologist, you're not somebody who's familiar with COVID-19, but you do know what this does to the heart. Have you spoken with doctors at any of these facilities that are actually running these tests? And, and do you, a month ago when we talked to you, you thought it would be safe to be running these tests in the hospital as long as doctors were alerted to this potential problem. Do you still think that's the case? Yeah, this issue of QT prolongation, we can navigate around it if these medications work. We can do QT monitoring as a vital sign by an ECG or by smartphone-enabled ECG technologies or by looking at the telemetry. So we can find out who are the patients who are showing, who are telling us that they're reacting, that they're a QT reactor, and that these medications is, may, may not be a good idea. So I still think these trials should continue. We need to know the answer because currently there are no medications with proven benefit for the sick COVID-19 patient. So we can do these studies and we can monitor for this unwanted drug-induced side effect and change course or correct things if we need to. But we have to find those and detect those who are showing a reaction to these medications. So I, I think you answered my question then, doctor. So in a, in a critical patient in the right setting with nothing else to try, and if it was, you know, just to test the efficacy for hydroxychloroquine, you'd, you'd say, all right, give it a shot, even at, even at this point, if you could monitor the QT, um, the, the cardiac response. You'd say, I mean, that doesn't sound like yeah, what we really that's, heard that's, from, you know, the way we're characterizing this. So you'd say, still give it a shot because we've got nothing else as long as you can monitor what happens to the heart. I think in the sick patient, that's a really a great question because in the sick patient, we are just not seeing a signal of efficacy of therapeutic benefit in hospitalized sick COVID-19. So backs up against the wall, nothing else to try. Could we continue to try the corona cocktail? Perhaps, but we really need to lean on our infectious disease experts and say, what other options might we have? And if we're going to use these medicines in the sick patient, we really need to be on our A game because we're starting to put together the perfect storm. On the other hand, I'm really actually quite excited to learn from the clinical trials about what the use of a medication like hydroxychloroquine might mean in the relatively healthy patient in the setting of post-exposure prophylactic therapy, we could have a completely different answer there where what if there is benefit with hydroxychloroquine? That person, that kind of a person, is a completely different safety profile host where we might have a lot more safety margin to be able to use a medication like this if it helps prevent the development of the disease. So in the sick patient, it's not looking so good for therapeutic benefit and the risk or the potential where the treatment itself could do sudden death is definitely there. And it's definitely there, unfortunately, as you, as we predicted together on this show over a month ago. And then remdesivir you got to use um, early on too before, before it's in the lungs really. 
Right, and at least in remdesivir, there's not a QT signal. Right. There's not a signal of sudden death potential, but the efficacy signal uh, isn't as exciting as first blush from the early uh, from the early reports. You are being far too generous. We didn't predict this together here a month ago. You predicted this and brought this to our viewers. We, we do appreciate your time. We do appreciate the heads up. And we hope you'll come back with other things as you see further developments that happen here. I look forward to joining you again. Have a great day, you guys. Should be able to do that. He's at the Mayo Clinic, Becky. I mean, it's the Mayo Clinic. All right. <laughs> That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box starts every morning at 6 a.m., hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin, who, like the rest of us, are spending a lot more time at home. Joe, I'm wearing Lululemon pants today. That's my thing. I'm wearing Lululemon pants Don't start pants doing today. what I do. I've been saying it's when you've given up. When you've given up on pain when we return is when you wear them. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you listen. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.